Father, we come as your people who are thankful for the harvest that you brought in, uh, the harvest of gifts that we enjoy, all the all the treasures, all the pleasures that we have in this life are from you and, uh, and can be enjoyed to your glory. And uh, Lord, the greatest harvest <coughs> that we have experienced is the harvest of righteousness, which comes on the basis of Jesus and his finished work. So we're thankful for uh, the fact that you've called us to be a part of your family, to be called your servants, your slaves, and and Lord, we are honored to to be in your service. And we pray that tonight you would <coughs> strengthen our uh, focus and our passion for you. Help us to to be more refi- refined in how we think about your word and apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, First Corinthians chapter seven tonight. First Corinthians chapter seven. Let me uh, draw your attention to verse 8 to start with. Um, I was finishing up last time by um, trying to delineate several categories that there are in this chapter. We saw the the people who are married in verses 1 through 7, and then we'll see next time the people who are single, verses 25 through 35, and then I made a distinction between widows and divorced in verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows. Unmarried there I called divorced, but Matt uh, pointed out to me that that doesn't exactly square with the context, so I took another look at it. And um, After examining it again, uh, I think that what he's saying there is he's actually talking about one category of people, that is people who whose spouse has died, widows. So he's saying, I say to the unmarried and to or who are widows, which is similar to what he does in verse 34. The second line says, the woman woman who is unmarried and the virgin. So I don't think he's talking about two categories there in verse 34. And on second look, I think verse 8, he's probably talking about just widows there. And... uh, so in my attempt to, to work through some of the earlier verses, I didn't take as much time as I should have initially, so I apologize for that. Um, seems to make sense uh, that, that he would be talking about widows there. Well, let's summarize where we've been so far in chapter 7. Um, this is the part of the letter where Paul begins to respond to their individual questions. So he says, now concerning, that's how he begins the chapter. Their first question has to do with, with purity. And whether or not the fact that they're now Christians, does that mean that they need to cut themselves off from all sorts of, uh, for, from all kinds of sexual intimacy, even if it's in, within the marriage relationship? And so they begin by saying, you know, we say that it's good not for, for a man not to touch a woman in an intimate way. And even if we're married to them, Paul says, no, that's not, that's, that's not the point. It's true, the culture is very much. Uh, engaged in immorality, and we need to guard ourselves from that. But within the marriage relationship, it ought to be done. It's necessary. And that's what he says here in the first several verses. So if, it, if you're married, it is your duty. Um, but if you're unmarried, 
you're single, widowed, then you need to abstain from all kinds of sexual intimacy because it's for the marriage relationship only. So what they were trying to say is, well, maybe now that God calls me to holiness, I need to remove myself from all kinds of defilement, even this kind of intimacy. And what Paul's saying is, no, that's not defiling to, um, to have this intimate relationship with your spouse with your spouse it's only defiling when it's done outside the covenant bond of marriage so apparently the the corinthians were also unsure about what they should do in cases of mixed marriages as well that is between a a christian and a non-christian that that uh, a couple comes to be married while both non-christians one of them gets saved now i'm in this relationship with an unmarried person or with, with an unsaved person, what do I do? And apparently this question came up too because that's where Paul picks up his teaching here in verse 10. And so tonight we'll see that he wants them and us to see that it's not ultimately about our status, married or single, uh, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free. It's not about our status, ultimately. Uh, those things may change, you know, even after we're saved, those things may change. But, but those are not of primary importance. What is of primary importance is our identity with Christ, our obedience to God. So let's see if we can, we can see that in the text together. Let me read this text for us, beginning in verse 10. This is the Word of God. But to the married... I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandment of God. Each man must remain in what condition and that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able to also become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So tonight, we see that it's true, the gospel does demand our holiness, but it doesn't demand a change in our secondary identities. It doesn't demand a change in our secondary identities. Sometimes when we look at ourselves, we identify ourselves based on 
our relationship to our family, our relationship to our spouse, uh, our relationship to our job, our relationship to our ethnic background, right? our ethnic people. And so that's how we identify ourselves. But what, what I'm saying is those are secondary identities when you come to Christ. Your new primary identity, the one that ultimately defines you, is your, your relationship with Christ. So don't worry about those other uh, secondary identities. It doesn't mean that you have to change from one to the other. So, you know, if you're, you're single when you came to Christ, don't have to get married in order to be more, in order to be closer to God. If you're married when you came to Christ, you don't need to become single in order to be pleasing to God. Okay? And he's going to go through uh, and show us several ways in which that is true. So, first, the gospel demands our holiness, but there's nothing inherently defiling about a mixed marriage. And when I say mixed marriage, I'm not talking about between people of two different colors. Okay? Uh, I'm talking about people of two different um, uh, positions in Christ. One who is in Christ and one who's not in Christ. That is a Christian and a non-Christian. That's what I mean by mixed marriage. There's nothing inherently defiling about a mixed marriage. So he's going to, to, to make several points in, in these first seven verses. First, in verses 10 and 11, he's talking to the people who are already married and they have this temptation that or, or this idea, probably from the world's wisdom, that they need to get away from all that is defiling. And one of the things that defiles them is their relationship with their spouse. And what he's saying is, if you're married to a believer, don't divorce them. So he's going to bring back the teaching of Jesus here and say that divorcing a Christian is still wrong. Divorcing a Christian is still wrong. Paul begins this section by reminding us of what our Lord said about marriage. And divorce. Now, he doesn't quote directly from Jesus, but he simply alludes to it. Notice how he does it in verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. So he's not quoting from Jesus, but he's summarizing what the Lord said. And that's why he uses this phrase. It's not just me who is saying this. This is coming from Jesus himself. When he was here you know, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter, I think it's 10. Um, you know, Mark chapter 10, here's what Jesus said. Don't leave your husband. And he goes on to say, don't divorce your wife, Mark 10, 11, and 12. So the purpose of marriage is for one man to be married to one woman for one lifetime. And so don't divorce, don't leave your, your spouse. And seems to be some parallels parallelism here that, that Paul is using in order to draw out this point. Notice how he describes it in verse 11. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. And then notice the parallelism at the end of verse 11, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So I take both of those to mean the same thing. That the wife should not divorce or leave her husband, and that the husband should not divorce or leave his wife. It's not talking about a period of temporary separation you know, where the, the wife goes to live at, at mom's house or something for a while. And the reason I know that is because of verse 11. Notice that little parenthetical statement in there at the beginning of the verse. But if she does leave, and I'm arguing that that means divorce in this context, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. 
So if it's just temporary separation and she's leaving her spouse, then how could Paul call her unmarried, you see? He's saying that she's left and divorced is what she's done. And so as a result, she needs to stay unmarried or get reconciled to to her husband. So I don't think this is talking about temporary separation, but what Jesus was talking about. Jesus wasn't talking about temporary separation, was he? He's talking about divorce. Don't divorce your spouse. Now, once we bring up the topic of divorce and we lay out a blanket statement like this, Christians, divorcing a Christian is still wrong. We have all of these exceptions that come up in our minds. Okay, And there are places in the Scriptures where the Bible talks about those exceptions. Jesus does that in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. But Paul doesn't hear. Okay? He's simply laying out a principle that, that what Jesus said was true. Similar to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. He didn't give any exceptions in that context. He simply said, don't do it. So we recognize that there are legitimate biblical reasons for a person to, to, to be divorced. Okay? But, but we're, I'm going to come to a conclusion here at the end. And, and make a statement about that. So I'll just save it for that. All right? All right. So first, divorcing a Christian is still wrong. Jesus said so. Paul's, Paul's bringing that back. He's confirming that. Secondly, divorcing a non-Christian is not required. Verses 12 through 14. So Paul's been talking about in, verse, in chapters 1 through 6, holiness and freedom from defilement and the things that are going to enslave us and to send us to eternal hell. And so, with all this talk of holiness and separation from the world, the, the Corinthians apparently were getting the, the idea misconstrued, probably based on his previous teachings. Now, they thought uh, that a Christian who is presently married to an unbeliever should divorce that unbeliever in order to eliminate defilement. See, if... If they were thinking, if I, a Christian, am married to an un, a non-Christian, then I'm being defiled. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. If you if you both came to if you both came to be married, one of you got saved at some point, then there's no defilement there. So I think we need to be clear that what he's not talking about is, you know, a mixed couple wanting to get married. That is, a Christian wanting to marry a non-Christian. I think we have proof from the Scriptures that that that, that doesn't make sense. Okay, that, that That's actually prohibited, that a Christian should not marry a, a non-Christian. What, what, um, what does a, a light have to do with darkness? What does Christ have to do with Belial? Right? Do not be unequally yoked together with, with an unbeliever. So... Um, I don't, Paul's not talking about getting married here in this context. He will later, uh, and we'll see that next week. But, but here he's talking about people who are already married. The one gets saved. What does a new Christian do who finds himself now in a mixed marriage? Is he defiling himself? Notice the authority of the command in verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife. So he says, I, I say this, not the Lord. Now, he's not saying the Lord's words have authority, mine don't. He could be saying that. But, but I think what he's doing is he's contrasting what he said in verse 10, which is what? I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. So I'm speaking on behalf of what Jesus already talked about. 
here in verses 12 and following, he's saying, I'm talking about what Jesus didn't specifically teach on. I'm going a little bit farther and and giving you some help with this regard. And so, Paul's adding a layer to how we should think about marriage and divorce. Not in contrast to what Jesus is saying, but adding another layer to it. And we know that this is what God wants because it's been inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and preserved for us in His Word. So, you know, sometimes people look at the anything that's in the black letters, you know, if you have a red letter edition Bible, anything in the black letters, not as authoritative as the red letters because those are from Jesus. But, but, but that's not consistent with what Paul said in, in um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is inspired by God. Not just Jesus' words. So we don't need to take Jesus' words and make a false dichotomy between His words and the Apostles. So Jesus' words are more important than the Apostles' words. So we don't have to listen as closely when the Epistles kind of breeze over those. But when we get to Jesus' words, pay attention. No. All of them are authoritative. They're all on the same level because they're all from God. They're all breathed out from the Holy Spirit of God. So uh, what Paul's saying here is, is important for us. The nature of the command is in verses 12 and 13. He says um, at the end of the verse, he must not divorce her. So, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, so any brother, notice that's talking about what kind of person? A Christian, right? If any Christian has, Christian man has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So there's a conditional clause. If she agrees to continue the marriage, there's no reason to, to, to seek a divorce. It's not defiling for you to be married to an unbeliever. This is important because in verses 15 and 16, this conditional clause, if she consents, because in verses 15 and 16, there's a possibility of an unbelieving spouse wanting a divorce. In that case, he's going to give some different advice. The reason for the command is found in verse 14. Uh, By the way, verse 13 is basically just the converse. Instead of a, a husband living with an unbelieving wife, it's a woman living with an unbelieving or married to an unbelieving Husband. So it's the same idea. In both cases, she must not send her husband away. She, he must not divorce her. Same idea. Verse 14, here's the reason. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For, for otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So, apparently the Corinthian Christians thought that being married to an unbelieving spouse would actually defile them in some way. And, and the reason I think that is the case is because Paul says the opposite in verse 14. He says, no, actually, you remaining in the marriage to an unbeliever is actually a good thing. Do you know why? It doesn't defile them. It, it actually sanctifies them. Now, this is amazing if you consider um, the Old Testament and how defilement works. Uh, defilement spreads, doesn't it? That if I touch a dead body in the Old Testament and then I touch someone else, what happens to that defilement? It passes on to them and now they're defiled and they have to have atonement made. They have to be cleansed, right? But what about holiness in the Old Testament? If I am holy, can I pass on my holiness to someone else? No. No. If I, let's say, 
Julia here is a leper. Okay? She has leprosy. She's defiled. She can't come near the tabernacle. When we touch, who's, which part gets exchanged? My holiness, my cleanness, or her defilement? So, here's what the Corinthians are thinking. Based on all of our Old Testament understanding, we've got a believer married to an unbeliever. What happens when we continue in this relationship? It seems like defilement would happen. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. Actually, it goes the reverse here. It's like how Jesus healed the leper in the New Testament. We would expect from our Old Testament understanding that when Jesus touched the leper, he would become unclean. But instead, he made the unclean, the one who was unclean, clean. He brought holiness. He brought purity to the man who was unclean. And Paul's saying, there's something similar going on here in the marriage relationship that you, notice, sanctify them. You sanctify your husband. Sanctify just means to make holy. And then also notice the children as well. If you're not there, okay, if you remove yourself from the, the, the family, then your children won't be holy either. Now, this can't, what does this sanctifying mean? What, what exactly is happening? Are we making them into Christians? No, we can't do that right. It doesn't mean that she saves her husband or that she saves her children. It simply means that what the word means in the generic sense, it means to set them apart for God. That, that we now put them in a position where now they are like a seed placed in fertile soil and have the opportunity to respond to the truth that they see of the gospel and the truth that they hear of the gospel. Think about it this way. Which is more likely? Is it more likely for a non-Christian who is married to another non-Christian to get saved? Or is it more likely for a non-Christian who is married to a former non-Christian? That is, is it more likely for a non-Christian who is married to a Christian to get saved? Which one? First or second? Second, why? Because they are confronted with the gospel nearly every day either in word or in action. They see it played out like, like, on a movie, like on a movie screen, right? And that's what's supposed to happen. The non-Christian sees his believing spouse and sees the change that has been affected by God and he and his children are more likely to get saved, sanctified. The, 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 the more important kind of, the more specific kind of sanctification, I should say. So, here, you have in Corinth some Christians who are thinking that, that they were being defiled by being married to their non-Christian spouse. But then you have this other group, apparently, in verses 15 and 16, who think that the only way that their spouse can get saved is if they remain married to them. Okay, so this is a little bit different. Notice what Paul says in verses 15 and 16. He says that divorcing a non-Christian is not prohibited. Divorcing a non-Christian is not prohibited. In other words, it's permitted. And there's a, there's a conditional clause to it. Just don't go out divorcing your non-Christian spouse. But notice verse 15. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, so here he's still talking about a mixed marriage, then let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Or how do you know, O wife, whether you'll save your husband? 
How do you know, O husband, whether you'll save your wife? So Paul wants them to understand that if an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse, if he simply wants to be done with the marriage, then what Paul's saying is, let him. It's okay. Notice the reason for the command at the end of verse 15. God has called us to peace. You might think, well, wait a second. He wants to leave. Doesn't that sound like some kind of separation or or conflict? I mean, peace sounds like holding things together, not allowing it to be torn apart. What does Paul mean here? I think he means that if an unbeliever wants to end the marriage, don't prohibit him from doing so because you'll have a lifetime of tension. You'll have a lifetime of strife and war. If he wants to leave, let him leave. In that case, you're, you're allowing for peace. Peace has become your compass in this case. And that's a good thing. The second reason for the command is found in verse 16. That your spouse could get saved apart from you. Right? How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? The implied answer is, you don't know. So don't feel obligated to reconcile to your unbelieving spouse just so that they will be saved. Because how do you know if God doesn't save them after they divorce you? We don't know. And so, neither a, a, a mixed marriage is neither defiling nor is it something that you have to hold on to forever. Okay? If, if there are... If they are wanting to leave, they're, they're going to abandon you, then, then seek peace. God has called us to that. All right, so first, the gospel demands our holiness, but there's nothing inherently defiling about a mixed marriage. In verses 17 through 20, he continues this idea by saying that the gospel demands our holiness, but there's nothing inherently defiling about our ethnic background. And here in verses 17 through 24, he, he gives us three commands and two examples. And here's the the way that he does it. Command, first example. Command, second example. Command. So, basically what we have is three commands and sandwiched in between those three commands are two examples. So, in verses 1 through 16, the marriage relationships were in a state of confusion because of salvation coming into the marriages. You know, married couples stopped having sexual intimacy, verses 1 through 9. One person wanted to leave a mixed marriage in order to avoid defilement, verses 10 to 14. Another person wanted to prevent an unbelieving spouse from divorcing them, verses 15 and 16. But Paul wants them to know that they should stay as they are. Here's kind of the theme that runs throughout the rest of the chapter. Remain in your present condition. Notice verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. So, How are you right now? Continue in that state. Don't feel like you have to change positions. And then verse 20. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Verse 24. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So what what status did you have when you came to Christ? Stay there. It doesn't matter your ethnic background. It doesn't matter your marital status. Stay in the position that you're in. It's okay. So in verse 17, he gives the command, the, yeah, the command, 
saying basically, with regard to your marriage, you're free. You're free to stay married. You're free to, if you're single, stay single. Or you're free to allow your unbelieving spouse to, to leave you, to divorce you. But the point of the command is here in verse 17, don't let that freedom become a license to, to um, change your secondary identity. Right? My primary identity is who, who I am in Christ and my responsibility to Him. My secondary identity are all these other things. Don't, don't let your freedom in Christ force you to change your secondary identity. Whatever status the Lord has assigned you before you became a Christian, continue in that. Were you married? Then don't feel like you have to you become single. Were you uncircumcised? Then don't become circumcised. That's what he's going to say in verses 18 and 19. Were you a slave? Well, then don't demand freedom. Whatever you were when you became a Christian, don't feel like you have to change yourself. Continue to, to grow in Christ and, and use your present status as a means to, to display the gospel. The last line of verse 17 shows that this is meant for more than just Corinthian Christians. Right? What I say to you, I say to all the churches. He's going to give two examples. The first one here is with regard to ethnic background. Verse 18, were you a Jew when you came to Christ? And don't seek to have a reversal surgery. The second part of verse 18, were you a Gentile when you came to Christ? Well, then don't seek to adopt Jewish regulations. It's okay. Just remain a Jew. Remain a Gentile. It's okay. And the reason, verse 19... Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Or as Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 15, you are a new creation. These uh, ethnic markers on a person's body are not of primary importance. What is, is that you are a new creation. You are a new identity. Now, the Jews would cringe at this idea. right? Being a Jew especially with their Old Testament support. Being a Jew was of primary importance. That was the main thing that identified me as who I am. That was everything. And Paul says, no, it's not. That's actually secondary. What's primary is that you obey Christ's commandments. That you are a new creation. It's not ritual observance. It's obeying God. So so we can apply this to verses 1 through 16. Marriage is nothing. Celibacy is nothing. Right? Or we could apply it to verses 21 through 23. Slavery is nothing. Freedom is nothing. What matters most is that you are a new creation. You must obey the commandments of God. That's your identity. Then he gives the command again in verse 20. goes along with verse 17. So we had command, first example. Now command again. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. So whether it was married, single, uh, Jew, Gentile, remain in that state. Thirdly, the gospel demands our holiness, but there's nothing inherently defiling about our present social status. Verses 21 through 24. So here he gives the second example. In verses 21 through 23. Were you called while a slave? Well, don't worry about it. But if you're able to become free, do that. So the command here is a little bit nuanced. Remember, this example is sandwiched between the two main commands, which is remain in the condition in which you were called. 
But notice, in this one, he says, don't seek, he doesn't say, don't seek to become free. Instead, he says, don't worry about it. The command here is not so much stay as you are, like it was in the other cases. They had no choice to be slave or free, but rather, don't worry about it. The most important thing with regard to your identity is your calling from Christ. So, at the end of verse 21, if you can become free, go ahead and do that. Now, now what he's saying is not, you know what, you know, with regard to marriage and singleness. If you came to Christ and you're single, then don't ever get married. He's not saying that. And the same thing is true here. He's not saying, if you came to Christ while you're a slave, too bad, you should have gotten free before then. Because now you can't seek freedom. What he's saying is, don't make that the primary thing that you that defines you. Because even if you don't get free, verse 22, notice, you're still free in Christ. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. So he's, he's showing what they ought to value most. It is better to be enslaved in your secondary identity and be free in your primary identity than to be free in your primary identity you're not a slave and to be enslaved as your secondary identity. Right? You're, you're, you're enslaved or you're enslaved in your primary identity. That is, that you're enslaved to sin. In other words, it's better to have an earthly master while being free in Christ than to have no earthly master and to be enslaved in sin. You know, someone might say, well, man, I wish I was a master. I wish not only was I free, but I was actually a master. Paul's saying, that doesn't matter. Even if you were and you were enslaved to sin, you haven't gained anything. And what they also needed to remember, especially the slaves, was that in the end of verse 22, those who are free on the earth are slaves to the Lord. So, let's say that, you know, a slave is like a little bit jealous of a freed man. You know, we've got a slave here who's a Christian and a freed man here who's a Christian. It's like, wait a second, what about them? You know, they got both. They got the best of both worlds. I have my primary identity in Christ. I'm free. Thank God for that. But I'm still a slave here on the earth. What about them? They have both. And Paul's saying, well, consider that they're not really free. Are they? I mean, yes, Christ is their master and they are free in, in one sense. But in another sense, they're actually slaves of the Lord. We, we all are. So we're all slaves and we're all free in the Lord, is what he's saying. No matter how you look at it. He makes an appeal in verse 23. He says, don't re-enslave yourself to the wisdom of the world. See yourself as Christ does. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So the, the wisdom of the world says... You are only as important as your social status. Okay, You are only important as what they define as important. And what Paul's saying is don't re-enslave yourself to that type of thinking. You see, if you don't see your freedom in Christ as the primary thing that defines you, then you're going to be enslaved to the wisdom of the world where you think that, that your secondary identity is most important. It's not. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. What matters is that you belong to Christ. You have been bought with a price. Don't re-enslave yourself. The command again is shown in verse 24. 
Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So it's not about our status or our condition in life, but it's about living out our calling from God. So wherever you are, if you're in a Christian marriage, if you're in a mixed marriage, if you're single, if you are from a various ethnic backgrounds, if you're blue-collar, white-collar, whatever socioeconomic condition you're in, let's serve the Lord. That's the main thing. All right, three, three points of application. Number one, recognize that a believer should not initiate a divorce. I just want to touch on this here again to, to try to clarify what I was saying earlier. If your spouse is a believer and you have a conflict, then reconcile. You don't have any biblical grounds to divorce your Christian spouse. If your spouse is an unbeliever and they are willing to stay married to you, you don't have any biblical grounds to divorce your spouse either. Okay? If they want to remain married to you, you're in a mixed marriage, you're the Christian, they're the non-Christian, stay married to them. However, if your spouse is an unbeliever and they abandon you or they no longer want to be married, then it's okay to let them divorce you. But I would suggest that there is no grounds for a Christian to initiate a divorce. There's never grounds for a Christian to initiate divorce. What do I mean mean by that? Because I'm not talking about that a Christian can't go and be the one that files the paperwork, right? Or be the first one to sign the papers. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the initiation of like a husband committing adultery. Okay, When the husband commits adultery, he's actually initiated uh some kind of separation. He's been unfaithful. In that case, Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 19 that that except in those cases, you need to remain married. But in those cases, you actually have the grounds to to divorce. So I'm not talking about who gets the paperwork out. Or, like Paul says here, if a husband abandons his wife, right, an unbelieving spouse wants to leave the marriage then he's actually initiated the divorce even if you were the one to go pick up the papers. You understand? But but in no case should a Christian ever be the one who initiates the divorce, either through acts of unfaithfulness or by abandoning the other person or by just saying you know what, what we like to say in our culture. Uh, you know, we just can't reconcile anymore. We have irreconcilable differences. And so let's just agree to part ways. Now, how do... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> how does a Christian know... <coughs> how does a Christian know... <coughs> Sorry. I'm trying to hold that in all night and now I can't talk. How does a Christian know who is the one who initiates the divorce? How do we know, right? If it's not the paperwork, how do we know who, who's the one who initiates? And, and the question is, it requires discernment. discernment. So I would suggest that you seek wise counsel because you don't want to do something rashly to say, well, I, I was confident that they started it. They're the one who started the fight, so I'm gone. Okay, this is very serious. God talks about the importance of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus reiterates that very seriously. And 
in both Matthew 5, 19 and Mark, and, and then also in Mark chapter 10. So we don't want to just minimize how, how much weight there is to this kind of action. So I would encourage you to never do anything that would start down that road, that pathway towards the, you know, uh, filing the paperwork and so on, uh, before you talk to wise believers who can help you think through some of these things. Find out what other believers who know you think about the situation. Take it very slowly. There's no rush, especially, uh, even if the other person initiated <coughs> the sin or initiated the divorce. All right. Secondly, enjoy your status in Christ. One of the great beauties of God is that He saves different kinds of people from various circumstances. And this is one of the beautiful things about this church. Have you ever considered that? That we have some in our church who are financially financially stable and some who are financially poor in relative terms. We have some who are educated, others who are not. We have some who are white-collar workers, other who, others who are blue-collar workers. Some who come from a religious background where they grew up in church all their lives and others come from a pagan background. But, but that's part of the beauty of the church. We don't have to, to change each other in the sense that they have to take on my identities, my secondary identities. You know, neither do we you know, pool all of our money together and become some kind of a commune. A commune. You know, um, we don't dismiss people because of their backgrounds or only allow them to join if, if they're on the same economic or social status. It's one of the great beauties of the church. And, and yet, no matter where we come from, no matter how high or low we think we are on the food chain, so to speak, we're all on the same plane in Christ, aren't we? I mean, we all have the same standing before God. Like that, that parable that Jesus uses of the vineyard, the vineyard workers, where the owner comes and, and asks for people to come and work, and so he hires some early in the day and tells them he's going to pay them a wage, and then halfway through the day, he's going to pay them a wage. And then later on in the day, he says he'll pay them a wage, and then an hour before close. And so the master at the end of the shift says, all right, let's start with the people who came last. The first group, had been they had agreed to one day's wage, a denarius. So when the master comes to the, the first group, which is actually the last group, this one that only worked one hour, he pays them a denarius. These people back here are thinking, this is awesome. If he paid them that much for only one hour, we've been here all day, so we're going to get a lot more. Next group, denarius. Next group, denarius. Final group, which is the ones that had been there all day. A denarius. It would, Master, how could you do this? Master says, can I, can I not show mercy to whom I want to show mercy? And the point is that we are all on the same plane. doesn't matter if we came to Christ when we were young. doesn't matter how much education or how much money we have. No matter where we stand, we all get paid the same rate, effectively. Not that we're earning our salvation. That's not the point of the parable. The point is, is that we all have the same standing before God. And God can show mercy to whom He wants to show mercy. So enjoy your status in Christ. Don't feel like you have to change your secondary status. Now there's some that are obviously blatantly evil that you'd have to change, but for the most part, they're not. 
Thirdly, use your status as a way to carry out the gospel. The other thing I find fascinating about our church and churches in general is that because we have all these various religious backgrounds and current statuses, that that we each have unique opportunities to share the gospel. Have you ever considered that? Maybe you lived your life for 40 years in sin, running from God, but then God saved you. And now you have contact with friends who knew you in your early life and and who, with whom you can share the gospel with, right? With your words and with your actions, you can share the gospel with them. Maybe, maybe you are financially poor, relatively speaking, right now. Well, you can actually reach people that others in the church would never meet. Maybe you're wealthy financially, and you're influential in the community. Well, you can reach people that no one else can meet. Maybe you're uneducated or highly educated. Each person has unique opportunities to use their social, ethnic, financial status to reach various people right where they are. Aren't you thankful that God has has saved people in various parts of our culture? Like, I I often think of athletes. I'm never going to get a chance to sit down one-on-one with an athlete. They're, They're not going to let me talk to them about the gospel. But what happens if God saves another baseball player, for example, like Ben Zobras of the World Championship Cubs? What happens if God saves him like he did? His dad's a pastor and still a faithful Christian church member. But then cannot Ben Zobrist reach out to some of these other non-Christians in his own field? I'm not saying that God's hands are tied if there's not a saved person there, but what I am saying is that God gives us unique opportunities where we are at. What about people in the highest levels of government? You know, we pray for our president and and our officials, but are we going to ever get an opportunity to, to have a meeting with them and share the gospel with them? No, but what if they have a family member or some other person that's, that's uh, at their level of the government or near it that can talk with them? they respect. You see, God is working to make His name known in all the earth, and He has strategically planted His sheep in various places so that we could spread the fame of His name. So think about that for yourself. What, what kind of relationships, what, what, what kind of status do you have that uniquely put you in a spot to use your circle of influence to to highlight your primary identity, which is in Christ. All right, a lot there, a lot of theology, a lot of verses, a lot of talking. Now it's your turn. Do you have any questions or comments? Yeah. I take it the same as what it means to sanctify the husband, which is that it gives them an opportunity to um, to respond to the gospel that they otherwise wouldn't have had. So um, there are just lots, scores and scores of pages that are written on this by all the scholars that I've read. Um, and some people, I, I don't know any of them, at least the conservative scholars that I'm reading 
no one believes that it's talking about salvation, that it actually you save the child or you save the husband, right? So it has to separate them apart for some other purpose, right? That's what holiness means. It means to separate them or sanctify them, set them apart for God's purposes. So what are those purposes? I don't know. But it seems to me that it, it is that God allows them to be in a position where they otherwise wouldn't have been because now there's a Christian there in the family that helps be a sanctifying influence on them that potentially could lead to salvation, which you know he goes on to talk about in verse 16. How do you know what's going to be used to save your, your spouse? So did you have a follow-up to that? Um, well, in verses 10 and 11, I take to mean two Christians. So, if a Christian divorces a non-Christian, then he should get remarried to that person or stay unmarried. But, uh, like he's going to say, uh, verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I. Well, what is Paul? Well, Paul's not married. But if they do not, so if a widow doesn't have self-control, then let him, let them marry. So he's clearly giving the um, permission for a widow to remarry. Um And it seems like in verses 15 and 16, once that husband leaves, right, if the unbelieving one leaves, and I take that to mean divorces, then let let him divorce. In that case, the brother's not under bondage in such cases. And I think that would apply to remarriage. That is, that that person, a Christian who has an unbelieving spouse, divorced them is not under bondage in the sense that they have to, you know, stay unmarried or get remarried to that unbelieving spouse. Instead, they would be free to to marry whomever they please or to stay single, which is what Paul's preference is. Um, So, last week I mentioned that, you know, this is the text that we like to go to to talk about remarriage and whether or not it's um, biblical. But... um, what Paul's doing here is not trying to lay out a theology of divorce and remarriage. So we, we tend to look for more in this text than actually is here. Um, so I think the, the permission for remarriage is more a theological one than a textual one. Um, so I... I I don't know that Paul addresses it specifically with regard to... I mean, obviously he addresses it with with a widow, but with regard to a divorced person, that's not really his point. So that's why I would say anything more than that, we have to to either force onto the text or we have to just draw out from implication. Bob? Ten eleven. So if two Christians are married, yes, that's the way I take it as well. One leaves, they 
guys to leave, they're never, no longer held to that same bond that the two believers yeah. were held to having to remarry or reconcile. So, That's the way I understand it as well. What's up? Yeah, again, in Mark 10, he's not giving any exceptions. He's simply, remember, what's happening there is the, are the Pharisees are trying to look for an out, right? Verse 2 of Mark 10, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. So they're looking for a way out, and, and Jesus is saying, you know, that, you know what you need to be thinking about? You need to think about that marriage is, is permanent. That's what you need to be thinking about. So in that text he doesn't give any he doesn't give any exceptions no one can get divorced for any reason but again every time we look at uh, a text like that we also have to keep it in context of what else jesus said so matthew 19 and matthew 5 is where we need to go to see that he actually so yes in the case where there's no biblical grounds for divorce a person who right right and i would say when there is no grounds for divorce, then remarriage would be uh, adultery. Is that where? You, is, is that where? Was it in Matthew? Yeah, uh, Mark 10 it says, "Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her." So I would argue that Jesus is not saying for any reason at all. He's saying, he's saying, I'm, I'm not giving any exceptions in this passage, right? Because in Matthew 19, he does give exceptions. So in Matthew 19, whoever divorces, verse 9 says, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So all the people in this category who divorce their, their spouse, who's, who's, let's say, unbelieving spouse, whose unbelieving spouse or believing spouse didn't commit adultery, that would be adultery. Remarriage in that case would be adultery. Except for, you have this one exception. If they committed adultery, then it's not adultery on your part to remarry, to divorce and remarry. That's how I take the passage. So there's two categories of people that he's talking about there. He's talking about those who have biblical grounds and those who don't have biblical grounds. Matthew 19.9. Yeah. And then um, Matthew 5.27. You've heard that it was said. Oh, no, that's not the right one. Uh, 5.31. Whoever sends his wife away, let him, divorce, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So so I'm I'm saying there's an exception for, and I would include in there, biblical grounds for for divorce. So if you have biblical grounds for divorce, then I would suggest you have biblical grounds for remarriage. And that's my understanding. I could... I think I've got a, a little paper that I put together on that. I'll have to see if I can um, find that. Maybe shed some more light on this. So I, I know this is a big, big, big issue. Anything else? 
Yeah. Do you have something? That's what he was saying. Based on what? Based on what passage? Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, and that's part of the the Jews and the Pharisees were had gotten so far that it was kind of like those really silly examples, like you're saying, I don't like the way you're doing your hair. Uh, for them, it was how you cooked a meal or something, and so they could divorce them for any of those reasons. And Jesus is saying, what did Moses say? We need to get back to what the scriptures say. And and in that context, he doesn't address the um, the exceptions.
Yeah. Well, well, I wouldn't say that, but yeah, even if yeah, I, w I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far, but I would say that it seems to me that um, Paul gives an allowance here in verses 15 and 16, and Jesus gives one in Matthew 19, even for people who made that vow that they're able to get out of that marriage for biblical reasons. And the two reasons that are clear are unchastity, Matthew 19, and abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7. So what all that means, does that include, you know, beating and all that? But, but yes, the vow is critical, and anyone who makes a vow for the, before the Lord ought to keep it. But Jesus and Paul seem to give an exception. I mean... That's what I was. You have to you have to wrestle with those two passages. You're not initiating it. Like I don't like being married to an unbeliever anymore. We don't have anything in common. If they want to stay with you, then you need to stay. That's what Paul says. But if they want to leave, then don't feel like you have to keep it going. I would say so. Yeah, I would say a, a cover or abuse would fall under abandonment. That's why I said. The two clear ones are unchastity and abandonment. But, you know, what happens if you have an alcoholic, you know, who's abusing his wife, then does that wife have biblical grounds to leave? And I would say yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and again, that's why I... I would say take it slowly. You know, if you if you can, you know, maybe reconcile. Uh, yeah. 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 It just depends on. Yeah. It just depends on. Uh, Paul doesn't list out all the. Yeah. Paul doesn't list out all the exact categories, but and, and I know that um, I know other Christians who who disagree with me, even on having any biblical grounds um, for for divorce. So, um, but based on what I see, it seems to me that that unchastity and abandonment, which I would also include in there, abuse, would be biblical grounds for divorce. So, and you know, we we can't know exactly what Paul all had in mind when he meant, you know, when he's talking about if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, you know, did he mean leave you and not, um, you know, not not joining you in the, the marriage bed? Did he mean leave you completely and divorce? It seems like the context means that he divorces her. Um, but, but anyway, we, we could go on and on. So, I need to stop because we do want to spend our time praying together. But I appreciate your...